David Cushion is the legendary historian and professor of history at Macquarie University in Australia. He is a Russian historian and the originator of the Big History Project. Big History is a framework that teaches history from all the way from the Big Bang to the present. Um, it brings together perspectives from across disciplines, including the sciences and the humanities, to try to build a consilient picture of history. Uh, here we talk about how the Big History Project has come together, how these different perspectives can be reconciled, uh, some of the challenges of doing big history as opposed to traditional history, and we talk a bit about the history of the future, how to think historically about the future. Here is my conversation with David Christian. Okay, so before diving down into what big history is, do you mind telling us a little bit about how the project got started? Yeah, I, I, I'm not actually sure myself, and you know how easy it is to sort of mythologize your own transitions, but I'm a Russian historian, and um, during the Cold War, I felt that teaching, I always felt that teaching Russian history was significant. So the question, is what I'm teaching significant for my students, has always really concerned me. And during the Cold War, I felt Russian history was significant because it was like the other half of the world was, you know, the, the dark side for many of my students. And just trying to give a realistic account of what was going on in the Soviet Union. So I always, I guess, felt that in teaching Russian history, I was talking about the world as a whole. And I think when, when uh, the Soviet Union collapsed, I had to sort of rethink things a bit and increasingly began to feel that in a rapidly globalizing world, what young people need to know about is not the history of this nation or that nation, because in a globalized world that looks increasingly tribal. If you don't mind me using that sort of anthropological phrase, but it, it looks like, like a kind of version of gang warfare when nowadays the gang is humanity as a whole. So I felt we really need to be teaching as historians courses in the history of humanity. And yet I knew of hardly any. The nearest I could get was world history. And world history, as you may know, has its own sort of biases and limitations. And most world historians are interested in the last 500 years, not really in the last 200,000 years, which is the, the scale of human history. So I began with the idea, I think, of a history of humanity. But very rapidly, as I thought, how do you teach a history of humanity? I thought, at this scale, you have to engage with the idea of evolution. How did our species come about? So what you're really doing is you're, you're offering a history of a biological species, a very strange one, a very strange one. But that very strangeness allows you, gives you some entry into these profound and sometimes metaphysical seeming questions about what makes humans different. It's a kind of empirical way into those questions. So we had to, I realized we had to talk about evolution. And then to talk about evolution seriously, I felt I had to talk about the origins of life. And to do that, I realized I had to talk about the geology of planet Earth. And then that led me into astronomy and back and back and back. And at, 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 as I went through this, this sort of thinking, this is mid eighties, I guess. So it, it was a sort of intellectual midlife crisis is what my, how my friends interpreted it, I think. I, I went back and back and back um, to the history of the solar system. And 
eventually realize that this is not an infinite regress. In an era in which our cosmology is dominated by the idea of a Big Bang, there is a starting point. So I, I suddenly thought, I wonder if you could teach a history course that began with the Big Bang and placed our species in that larger story. And I thought, if, if you could do it, it'll be a great way of both linking different disciplines, breaking down the divide between the humanities and sciences, but also of putting what is happening now in our world in perspective. And over the years, I've realized that putting what is happening now into perspective means realizing that we live at a turning point, not just in the history of humanity, but in the history of planet Earth, and perhaps even in the history of our part of the galaxy. This is, this is what, what, what's happening is profound, but you cannot even begin to glimpse it unless you attempt this very wide vision. So that's a long answer to your question. But really, I guess at the core is the idea of understanding our strange species, because in a globalized world, we need to think of ourselves as a single species that is now so powerful collectively that it is managing a planet. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of surprising that humans have such significance on a large geological timescale, but, but it's also not if you just take a look at the impact that humans have had. Yes, and that takes us back to questions that I think I was taught to think of as kind of metaphysical or even sort of quasi-theological, which is about the nature of human beings. You know, is this a mystical question or a metaphysical one? And eventually I began to think, no, it's an empirical one. Um, you, if you, if you think of four billion years of life on earth, you can ask a very simple question. What is distinctive about the history of our species? Well, the answer I think is again, empirical. It's very, very simple and very, very clear. We are the first species in four billion years that has shown a capacity for endless intellectual creativity. And the result of that is that we break the rules of natural selection. We don't occupy a new niche and then fill that niche. We keep occupying new niches until eventually our niche is the planet as a whole. And we're the first species in 4 billion years to do that. Now, once you have a species capable of that, you have a species capable of dominating change on planetary scales. So that raises the question, what is it about us that makes us different? And it's got to be something <laughs> both small and immensely significant, because we know how close we are biologically to species that have not had this impact, such as chimp, chimps above all, very close to chimps, and even sort of other species of humans, such as Neanderthals, and now we talk about Denisovans, who seem not to have had this sort of impact. Uh, maybe given time they would have, but, but they didn't. So what is it about us? And, and I've argued for years, and I still find the answer plausible, 
that it's what I call collective learning. Now, that's very similar to terms other people use, such as cultural accumulation. Or, but by that, I simply mean the fact that we humans share information. Now, many species share information. Okay, they have language, but we share information. It's as if with a virtuosity which takes us across a threshold because many species share information, but they also lose information. It's not stored efficiently enough to accumulate across generations. We've crossed that threshold so that information is stored across generations and that changes everything. I mean, this is a wonderful example of, of the Hegelian quantity turning into quality. Once you, your sharing of information is efficient enough and on a large enough scale, then all the rules change. And what it means is that you, you wait a few generations or a few centuries or a few millennia, and this species is behaving differently than it did before. And you can define the direction of that difference. Its power over its environment increases because it accumulates more and more knowledge. And that knowledge is preserved across generations. So it's, it's a very simple idea. Um, and I think it's, it's also enough to explain both contradictory things, both the extent of our power and our closeness to chimps, because it's as if human language doesn't need to be radically different from chimp language, but it does need to have to have to be powerful enough to have crossed this threshold. It's not language itself. It's it's a language that has crossed a threshold in power, linguistic power, the power precision and volume of information that can be communicated, shared, and stored. Because information, I mean, if you go back to the biological domain, organisms have both, you know, they have, they have claws and eyes and teeth, both biological mechanisms to enable them to deal with their surroundings, but also information. If you're, if you're a, a brainy species, a mammal, um, if the, the information allows you to deal with your environment in improved ways, if the amount of information you have about your environment keeps increasing, then your power to control your surroundings keeps increasing. And that's the species we are. And, and the, you know, you can start getting very powerful evidence of this increase at least 50,000 years ago. Uh, 60,000 years ago, there were humans in Australia. 40,000 years ago, there's uh, very good evidence of massive extinctions of large animals, of fire stick farming, transforming the biota. Uh, so, so the fuse of this thing was lit probably 200,000 years ago, but hard evidence for fundamental change kicks in at least in the last 50,000 years, I think. Right, right, right. So it's it's language and culture, uh, both, both the fact that you have language and language distributed over a network of agents. Yes. Yes. And I think, I think that, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm inclined to take, to regard the two as, as the same because language itself, you're, you're not going to get language if you don't have a species that's quite sociable. And what one thing that seems pretty clear about not all 
but a lot of our close biological relatives uh, is that they're they're very they're social beings i mean they their survival strategy depends on collaborating with 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 colleagues orangutans may be an exception to this but um uh, but I think most other closely related species are are highly sociable, and that 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 also helps explain why language becomes important. Because if you're sociable, you want to know what what your other members of your family or community are, are thinking. Right. There's uh, speculation about octopus, right? That they are highly intelligent creatures, but they never quite develop that way because they're they're non-social. So whatever intelligence they may accumulate over their lifetimes, it doesn't get passed on and it doesn't aggregate. Yes, yes, because it means that what is learned, an individual may, may be a real virtuoso at learning, but what the individual learns is lost when the individual dies. And that's the great difference with us. What the individual learns becomes part of a collective store of knowledge. I've recently been reading some wonderful stuff about about how knowledge is stored in indigenous communities and how so much of the ritual activity, the dancing, the geographical activity is really a way of um, storing information, storing it in mnemonics, in landscapes, in rituals, in dances. And the repetition of all of this in, a, in a, a culture without writing is a very, very powerful way. So of, of, of storing, of preserving traditional information. Okay, so shifting gears a bit, you use the idea of an origin story to tell the story of big history. Uh, so can you tell us a bit about why an origin story? Why has that been a helpful device to frame this? Right. I'm not an anthropologist, but uh, so, you know, I, I, I skimmed the surface of many disciplines, but I think there's a, a, a fairly wide acceptance of the idea that most, perhaps all human communities tell stories about their own pasts. I mean, this is, this is, this is history. Um, and um, many of those stories can be described as origin stories in the sense that their role, again, is to pass on to the next generation everything we know about how things came to be. Not only how you came to be, but how your parents came to be, how your community came to be, how the landscape, the mountains, the rivers, the stars, the sun came to be. So that's what I think of an origin story as. And I think an origin story is a very powerful educational device. And I think it's true that all societies have some form of origin story. They may not think of it as a kind of linear history in the way that we do, but, but it's certainly a way of accounting for origins. Um, and passing those stories on to young people is a very powerful way of holding all knowledge together, of framing all knowledge, not just scientific knowledge or ecological knowledge, but also ethical knowledge. And should we call it theological knowledge or spiritual knowledge? You know, knowledge about the, the, the rules or the understanding of the universe 
that your community that's that's embedded in your community and I've sort of co-opted the word origin story um, I should say that my wife was a professional storyteller for many years and she's the one who said David what you're doing is you're telling an origin story so I think of big history so the question for me was in a modern world whose understanding of reality is shaped so profoundly by science on global scales, is there an origin story embedded in that world? And I think the answer is a very clear yes. And what I've tried to do in my teaching of big history is to tell a version of that story. Right, right, right. One thing I, I found really interesting in exploring your work was the idea that uh, origin stories throughout time have a significant empirical component to them, that you can find the roots or the attempts to do science in origin stories throughout time. And I know you can draw an equivalency between science and, and, and stories of that sort because there's still a significant enough methodological difference, uh, but, but still. Yes, I, I, I feel this very strongly. And it's partly living in Australia where at last and belatedly Australian scholars and politicians and thinking thinkers are coming to terms with the reality of human communities that have lived here for 60,000 years. And, and the, the more I think about that world, the more I think the word science can usefully be extended to it. Okay, there's a, modern science has its own distinctive features, no doubt about it. So I take the idea of a scientific revolution very seriously. But, but the idea of knowledge that's based on a large body of empirical information, empirical observations that generate hypotheses about reality is something I take very seriously. So in that limited sense, I think of origin stories as scientific. They had to be, because you don't teach young people nonsense. You, you teach people, young people, stories that will help them survive in their world. So that so the origin stories contain information about animal migrations, about the seasons, about uh, about weather forecasting, about all sorts of empirical things, about how you relate to your own family and your own community. That's moral. It's empirical knowledge, but it's moral empirical knowledge. So I, I, I see modern science as very similar to that, with the difference that it's based on vastly more hard information in a globalized world. Uh, science is, is the knowledge of reality that has emerged in a globalized world. I think there's a growing realization of the extent to which modern science, even if you can first locate it in Europe, depended on globalization, on information from many societies, uh, for example, on observations taken all around the world. Uh, so I think of modern science as the scientific knowledge of a global world. Right, absolutely. Uh, very rarely do intellectual traditions not borrow from previous eras.
Yes, of course. I, I, of course, there's, there's, it, it's so easy when you study modern science to see the differences between modern science and traditional small s science, as I've defined it, which we often think of, we often describe as religion or theology, or, or we use anthropological terms like animism or whatever it is. And, and I do think, you know, one of the great differences is that, uh, and in my book on the future, this is something that came clearer to me, that one of the great differences about modern science, I think, is it's abandoned a hypothesis that was almost universal in most human societies and is still widely held today. And that's the hypothesis that we humans are surrounded by beings, non-human beings of many, many kinds who play a fundamental role in the universe. And that was a hypothesis that I think uh, made a lot of sense. But modern science has achieved a hell of a lot by abandoning that hypothesis and focusing on the idea that most processes in the universe are not caused by conscious decisions of conscious beings. Politics is an exception, of course, which is why politics is so unpredictable. Um, and, and modern science has achieved a lot on the basis of that assumption. This is what Weber called uh, the, um, oh God, what's his term? Um, the, the, the disenchantment yeah. of, of the world. Yeah. Do you think the humanities today serve that role of exploring the things that the natural sciences have excluded? Yeah, I guess that's, that's, that's maybe a nice way of putting it. I, so science has, has, has made such progress by pushing this idea of exploring mechanical, non-conscious processes that by definition are more predictable than than conscious processes. I mean, if if there are magical forces going around or if there are spirits of various kinds, I really can't predict their behavior. But if if in fact it's the law of gravity I'm operating with, then th the universe is much more predictable. Uh, but I think you're absolutely right that in a scientific world, there's a danger of overlooking those areas of reality where conscious um, and inevitably somewhat, um, what, 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 what's the word, less law-abiding processes take place. And by definition, humans, the human domain is, is such a domain. We don't find the kind of regularities that we do with the law of gravity or with planetary orbits when we're dealing with human biographies or, or with politics. In, an, in, in, in which individual human quirkiness plays a huge role. So yes, that's a, that's a nice way of putting it, that maybe humanities, the humanities disciplines are very often exploring those domains in which, um, which remain enchanted, I guess, to sort of turn Weber's metaphor, borrowed from Schiller, apparently, uh, to turn his metaphor upside down. It seems that there's a bit of a trade-off where because the sciences have been reductionist and mechanistic, they and often siloed off and specialized, 
they've been able to achieve a lot and very, very efficient, but it's excluded a bit of that human experience out of it. But where the humanities can capture that human experience, they, they tend to be so fragmented that you don't get the emergence of these large paradigm ideas the way that you see in the natural sciences. But in, in defense of science, I mean, in my own experience of now some 30 years of trying to teach big history and trying to persuade people that it ought to be part of modern school and university syllabi without great success, I have to say, I found that despite the hyper-specialization of science, one of the great virtues of science is that all scientists know that there are vast generalizations that span most of science that have to be taken seriously. Now, this is not true in the humanities, which by and large lack paradigm ideas. So that it, there's a strange sense in which the humanities I've found are more prone to hyper-specialization than the sciences because every scientist knows that there are there is there are paradigms there and they have to take them seriously in the humanities it's it's quite acceptable to cast doubt on that idea um, so i have found conversations with scientists about big history much easier than for most scientists the idea of big history is a no-brainer uh, you know, it's just, it, they may not, they may be specialists, but but why not? Why not teach the history of the universe? Cosmologists do this all the time. Um, but um, the scientists do, you're, you're quite right, do often lack respect for the kind of fuzziness of the domains that scholars in the humanities deal with. And I think that's what, the humanities disciplines can bring to these debates, but the best scientists are acutely aware of all of this. And the probabilistic nature of modern science sort of prepares them for, for this. And it, 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 it means that science today at its best lacks the determinism and extreme mechanism extremely mechanical nature of 19th century science, which was deterministic. How's the experience been for you as a historian, uh, having sort of these general curiosities, but being embedded in a space that often lends itself towards hyper-contextualization? Well, look, I think big history is all about context contextualizing, by the way. it's But it's a different sort of contextualization to what most historians deal with. I'm trying to see human history in the context of the history of the biosphere and see the history of the biosphere in the context of the universe. So that's all about contextualization. Um, but how's it been? I, th I think partly, I sometimes think that we underestimate the extent to which we, we come at disciplines with particular mindsets. Um, I, most historians in my experience are, my, my, my wife's a a Jungian scholar, or she she knows a lot about Jung. So, um, she, and Jung talked about people who glom on to the details and they find the details exciting and revealing and full of meaning. There are others who scoot past the details and look for the grand generalizations. 
I think most historians are the first type, but I think my mind was always the second type. I couldn't make sense of the details unless I had some sort of general framework. Um, so, you know, for a time, for example, as a scholar of the Soviet Union, I, I, I was very interested in Marx, fascinated by his project of creating a paradigm within what we might think of as humanities disciplines. So that may be why I found it easier than most historians to sort of um, look, for the look for paradigms within the humanities, which is something that many people in the humanities resist. And some resist it passionately. But I have to say, um, one of the things I've learned over 30 years, I think, is how deep and how subtle is the resistance to that project within the humanities and how subtle and hard to negotiate with are the discipline boundaries. Let me give you one example. Big history was taught at Macquarie University, where I've, I've taught most of my career for 30 years, uh, from, from 18, 1989 to 1921. During the pandemic, it vanished. Now, that was partly because I taught those big courses. They drew in students from across the university, generally drew several hundred students. But the university issued a sort of <laughs> uh, a, a fatwa, um, an instruction to the department saying you can only have two first year courses. So that was a challenge to each department, including the modern history department, where by accident, big history was taught. Are you going to keep the big history course, most of which has nothing to do with what is conventionally thought of as modern history? Or are you going to keep the course on Australian history or a course on European history? And for the department, of course, it was a no brainer because the loyalties, the career paths, the self-definitions, the sense of self-respect of the scholars involved were bound up with the definition of themselves as modern historians. So the resistance to this sort of interdisciplinarity is not so much overt as covert and subtle and embedded within the structures of exist of today's universities and the way knowledge is taught. Now, I, I personally think that's tragic because, because I think in a globalized world, it's absolutely so vital in today's world that young people grow up thinking of themselves as members of a human community. But a fragmented teaching of history and literature and culture cannot cannot help them towards that understanding. Whereas I think big history has the potential to do that. So I think it's as if the academic world, universities and schools, school syllabi are designed for a world in which the dominant social entities were indeed roughly on the scale of nation states. They weren't all nation states, but they were roughly on that scale. 
whereas today we desperately need an origin story, which is an origin story in some sense for all human beings. Now, that project is one, again, that I find many colleagues in the humanities deeply skeptical about because they assume immediately that that will homogenize, uh, which is nonsense because we, you know, we, we, we teach national histories. We talk about national cultures or gender histories or, you know, and, and um, we know that you can talk about large categories. It doesn't necessarily lead to homogenization if it's done well. Um, so I'm, I'm probably stating the obvious, but, <laughs> but what, what is not so obvious is how subtle are the barriers to what may seem a simple project like teaching the history of humanity in place of the older histories of nations. And given the fact that nation states still fund education, of course, there's a financial aspect to all of this. Who's going to fund histories of humanity? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's especially tragic because I think studying history lends itself to being interested in these large general questions. Um, yeah, I don't know how you study the intellectual history of Russia and not be curious about large philosophical problems. But but there is a bit of a pushback, some discouragement there that um, those kinds of questions shouldn't be pursued formally within history. They should be left for another department. Yeah, I think so, so much of the Russian intellectual tradition, and I love Russian culture, I love Russian literature, which is one of so many reasons why what's happening right now is so tragic. You know, seeing a country whose intellectual traditions I admire um, being dominated by a sort of crude and brutal nationalism is just is just horrifying. Anyway, um, yeah, you're absolutely right. I think it may be partly being a Russian historian that pushed me in these directions. But then the whole Marxist tradition, which so shaped Russian Soviet history in the 20th century is universalizing. I mean, I think I think of Marx as someone, uh, but he was not the only one. Um, Alexander von Humboldt is less known, but another example of a 19th century scholar. I mean, even people like Spencer, who most people in the humanities today tend tend to sort of despise because their their ideas, in retrospect, look a bit wooden. But they, their impulse was, I think, the same. It was to, um, to, to, to find a large paradigm idea that could help us better understand the history of our own species. And so I think people like Marx, uh, were, they were trying to put together a history of, the, of humanity as a species. Yeah, I think, I think there's, there's a bit of an assumption in history, or at least popular assumption in history, um, that history is the act of stepping back and analyzing something from a third-person objective perspective. Um, yeah, so do, do you think that holds, or does history also involve taking stock of all our epistemic machinery? Yes, and I think I, I, I you know, one of I, I've always enjoyed reading science, and I think perhaps one of my vices as a historian is an insensitivity to the perspectival aspects of history. But having said that, um, I think my own view of, of, of the history discipline at the moment 
is that um, you do need to be very conscious of the perspective that you're trying to represent in talking about the past. Um, and now, as you know, there's a, there's, a, there's a fantastically rich um, body of scholarship in many disciplines that's trying to look at the, the past and the present from perspectives that have been underestimated, you know, so, so identity politics. And it's not, it, it, it's, it's not just identity politics. It's, it's about identities that were underrepresented in the past. So, you know, the, the male white imperial perspective was very well represented in the past, but many others weren't. So historians have done immense amount of work and, and people in other cultural disciplines at exploring those perspectives. I guess you could think of my project in some ways as similar. It's trying to, on the assumption that I think is hard to avoid, that it's possible to describe, as it were, a group perspective, like the, the, the past of a nation or the past of a particular, the past of women, Whatever your, whatever your perspective, I'm arguing, I'm asking the question, is it possible to explore the past of humanity at the scale of, of the species? That's a question that I fear gets very little traction at the moment. And yet I think it is so strategic in a world where the, to solve our problems now, we cannot solve them at the regional level. We need global collaboration. I mean, it's obvious with something like global warming, but it's also obvious with things like preventing nuclear war or avoiding, you know, an issue that's now more salient than it's been at any time in my life since the 1960s or avoiding future pandemics. So I guess I too am engaged in a kind of identity politics history writing it, by exploring that question. What, if, if we imagine a history which is for all of humanity, what might it look like? But so many of the identities that, that um, historians explore at the moment are on a much smaller scale and deliberately so out of the sense that it's the small scale identities that got lost in the past, you know, overshadowed by the sort of grand imperial identities and they need to be rescued. Whereas I'm going in the opposite direction, I suppose, and, and looking at an even broader identity, but it's one that is so strategic in today's world. I have um, three grandchildren. I worry a lot about their future. And if, their generation cannot imbibe the idea of global citizenship, I think it will lead to terrible consequences. My generation certainly didn't imbibe it. It was never taught. It didn't make much sense in the middle of the 20th century, but now it's becoming essential, I think. Yeah, I mean, I mean that's absolutely true. I, I just don't see a way where we could address the problems of today, given how daunting they are if we don't have a significant shift in, in ambition and scale. Um, the, these just aren't small-scale problems and, and small-scale solutions just won't work. This is, you know, I think of big history as the sort of history we need. 
in in a at the point where we recognize that we we are now so globally interconnected that our global interconnections now have the power that national interconnections or tribal or religious interconnections once had. Um, but it also leads me to optimism because um, I think if you look for it, you can see many, many signs of global interconnection. I mean, the sustainable development goals of the United Nations. Now, so many people are cynical about this. They say it's just rhetoric or the climate ambitions, the climate commitments made at the Paris Accords. Now, having grown up in a world where the idea of every member of the United Nations signing up for the sustainable development goals, which are a sort of vision of a future utopian world, would have been unthinkable. Or the idea of, so that the mechanisms are very weak, the kind of the ways of articulating this global collaboration, they're very weak. And what the newspapers, what the media tend to highlight is the clashes created as we're forced into closer and closer contact. So that 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 the, the, the Ukraine war, um, you know, dominates our understanding. But what's remarkable is the the, the the extent of collaboration in the financial system, the global financial system. Again, we see often see this as, as a kind of competition, but the extent of global cooperation is staggering. Our conversation is, is an amazing example. And the fact that just before I talked with you, I was talking with my daughter and seeing pictures of my granddaughter in New Jersey. I mean, that sort of thing is... So I'm, I, I think there are, it's an evolutionary process. There are many, many forces tending towards a more global vision. And there's no reason that we can't have both, right? That it, it, history has done an incredible job in telling the histories of people who have long been marginalized, uh, telling the histories of people who have been intentionally excluded out of the, the record. And, and it's impossible to understate how much positive social change that's had. It's, it's really remarkable, and it needs to persist. But constructing a cultural or a personal identity doesn't principally conflict with the idea of constructing a human identity, of taking stock of the human-level problems that we have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. And, and, and the focus on you know, particularly our identities that have needed to be excavated out of historiography. You know, in, in, in the, in the um, sub, subcontinent, of course, sub, you know, subaltern history was, was really crucial in, in all of this. It, but the, 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 one of the insights that ought to come out of that is, is that, no identity overrides all of the other identities. I mean, nationalist thinking encourages you to think that it does, or a lot of the simplistic thinking in the media encourages you to think that, you know, the fact that you're a Christian or the fact that you're a Muslim or the fact that you're a Buddhist is, or Hindu is, is, is really the only significant thing I need to know about you. Well, that's very dangerous. Um, we need to know multiple identities. And one of the identities that is simply not 
discussed or explored enough, I think, is our, our identity as members of the human species. And so that's another way of talking about what I'm trying to do, I think, or what I have been trying to do. Right. And, and it seems to me that history has a great mechanism for developing these perspectival frames, but it doesn't have a great mechanism of adjudicating between the validity of them. Um, to do that, you need to ask questions about, you need to bring in the sciences. You, you need to ask questions about mind and our epistemic machinery and what kind of creatures we are and so on and so forth. And, and history doesn't really have a, a robust mechanism to do that. Yes, I agree. And as we've tried to build big history, and the phrase big history may be part of the problem. I'm acutely aware of that. It was acute phrase at the time when we needed some kind of label for what we were what we were doing but we've had several confident uh, conferences of the international big history association and at all of those conferences there's there's emerged a kind of very deep gulf between those who think of themselves as scientific thinkers and those who see science as wooden, mechanical, dangerous, and are more open to traditions that many that appall many scientists. So sort of so we've seen that conflict within within big history. Um, and it's 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 true that in, in the humanities, you know, I've been a, I've got a colleague, Fred Spear, who's written a lot about big history, who's accused me of um, not being rigorous enough. And in a sense, he's quite right, because in many of the humanities disciplines, the best you can hope for is a sort of plausibility. You know, I can't prove that a global identity is correct or incorrect, or that uh, my identity as a Christian is I'm not a, I'm, I'm, I'm an atheist, by the way, I should say, but I, you know, I, I grew up in, in Christian traditions, um, it is a defining, I can't prove that, it's not something open to prove, but it, it is something um, you have to discuss at the level of plausibility, and that irritates many people in the sciences. Uh, so, yes, I agree. So, some way of, I, I think in the book on the future that I wrote, one of the, it's a very simple insight, but it's one that seems to be more and more powerful, is simply that we live in a world, in a universe surrounded by processes of many different kinds. And one way of classifying those processes is as more or less regular. And modern science has focused on the regular, the, 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 the more regular processes, the more predictable processes. And it's very good at dealing with them. And it looks for regular processes, even in domains where we're not sure we can really find them. Um, so it, it sometimes tends to exaggerate the regularity of the universe, the mechanical nature of the universe. Whereas the humanities sometimes suffer from the opposite vice. But if you simply think of us as surrounded by processes that run all the way from, from one extreme of so predictable that, that I'd predict my life on it. You know, I, I bet the sun's gonna shine, the sun's gonna rise tomorrow morning. 
the, the government's going to tax me, um, and to processes at the other end. You know, is the Russian government going to make use of nuclear tactical weapons? Um, not really any idea. And, and the humanities have tended to exist mostly or more in the realm of less predictable, more irregular processes. Right, right. And, and also I think an important point is that sometimes the humanities uh, don't give enough credit to mechanistic explanation. Yes, I agree. Yeah, that, that, that if you really dive down into the depth of a mechanistic explanation about the world, that doesn't exclude you from the beauty of human experience, right? Like understanding something intimate about your own psychology can, can far enrich your life, can, can far more enrich your life than, than speculating about it. Yeah. And I think, you know, the, the best scientists are acutely aware of this, um, that uh, so what you really need is, is a kind of, is a sensitivity to the degree of regularity you're dealing with. Uh, now, Marx is interesting again. He was looking for, um, oh, Spencer too, you know, he was not, Marx was one of many 19th century thinkers doing the same thing, looking for regularities, probably more regularity in human development than was possible. But there are domains, demographic history is an example, where, um, and Kant said this very clearly, he was aware of this, if, if I see a young couple and you ask me how many children they're going to have, I have no idea. If you show me a thousand young couples, I'll tell you to a decimal point or two how many children they're going to have on average. You know, so that's so demographic historians, for example, you know, aren't aren't afraid of, of making predictions. So it's it's very conventional for demographers to predict what. The, the world's population will be in 2050, assuming that existing trends continue. You know? So what we need perhaps is more sensitivity to the degree of regularity of the domain we're dealing with. And one of the great changes in 20th century science, one that I wasn't so clear about until writing this book on the future, is the switch in the late 19th, early 20th century from a highly deterministic idea of science. You know, the, 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 the hope that eventually science will find regular laws everywhere to a much more probabilistic view of the universe once it was discovered that even at, at, the, at the level of, 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 at the quantum level, things are irregular at the specific quantum level, not at the not at the aggregate level where you find regularities. Um, so yeah, that I, I increasingly think that's the main difference that, that, that in the humanities, we're trying to say something sensible in domains where there are, there are not the sort of regularities you have. So I think for a historian to avoid Mathematics, for example, is um, is perhaps rational. I, I know of historians who who try to look for kind of mathematical equations that will describe the evolution of technology, for example. I'm I'm, you know, there are trends, there are shapes to that evolutionary pattern. It's not 
completely irregular, but I but I think that may be overdone. Right, that, that that's an interesting question and and an open question. Um, yeah, I don't know where reduction will end up going in the sciences. Um, I mean, it ma it makes sense that everything ultimately reduces down uh, the biology, the chemistry, the physics, and so on and so forth. Um, but even if you have like this grand ontological reduction, that still leaves open this problem of, ex of explanation, right? That you will still need uh, the, the the methods, the languages, the conventions of of fields that want to explain whatever phenomena at whatever emergent levels. You'll still you'll still have that need. Yeah, and particularly once you make the very simple observation that I think is hard to avoid, which is, you know, the universe is large and complex, and our understanding of it, despite our power, is very limited. Given that, what we're looking for is, over and over again, is not perfect explanation, but the best explanation accessible to us given the amount of knowledge we have at the moment. So very often I, th I thought of writing big history as an attempt, as a tour of paradigms or sub-paradigms or pseudo-paradigms, an attempt to introduce my students to a series of big stories that are told in different domains of knowledge, the cosmological story, the geological story, the biological story, the, the, the historical stories, what are the dominant stories that we tell? And that's using the word story is not a way of um, not taking them seriously, but it is a way of contextualizing them, of saying that, for example, when I, we talk about Big Bang cosmology, at the moment, unless you're a cosmologist, it's probably makes a lot of sense to take that story very seriously. But I can also say in the same breath that in 200 years time, I'm pretty sure that many aspects of that story will look outdated. Right, of course, we're, we're always in the infancy of our sciences. Yeah. Um, despite all that, uh, despite everything we just talked about, do you still find a reason to be optimistic about the future? Yes, yes. There are several reasons, and this, these, these arguments sort of clarified themselves as I was trying to write a book about the future, um, which is really because I realized if I wanted to think about the future, I didn't know what books to read, so I tried to write the book I'd like to find. The, the rules about thinking about the future are very simple. First, we have no direct evidence, unlike the past, where we have lots of evidence. We have no direct evidence, and that's, that's an insight of modern science. Traditional religion doesn't share that conviction. In many ways, traditional religious beliefs flirt with the idea that it's a quasi-deterministic idea that maybe the gods know what the future is, and maybe if we can contact the gods, they'll tell us. So we have so modern within a modern scientific paradigm, we know nothing about the future. So how can we deal with it? given that we're biological organisms and the rest of our life will be in the future, we have to deal with it second by second, day by day. How do we do it? Well, the answer again, it took me a lot to sort of see this clearly and I wish someone had told me before, but it's, it's very simple. We make a leap of faith. We study the past and we look again for the most regular aspects of the past. And 
when we find things that repeat with some regularity in the past, we make the leap of faith. And Hume, David Hume is very good on this. This is, um, this is inductive logic. We make the leap of faith that that trend will continue. And it's not just how humans deal with the future, it's how living organisms deal with the future, all living organisms. They, they, they place that bet. It's, it's, a never, it's never a certain bet. It's always a probabilistic bet, but this is how we do it. Now, if that's true, then it follows that studying, irregular, studying regularities in the past is absolutely crucial to any thinking about the future, which is why the separation of the history discipline from all the disciplines that think about the future is completely crazy. So you need to look now, if you're thinking about large trends in the future, then it makes sense at least to be looking at large trends in the past. And that's something most historians don't do. By large trends, I mean trends on scales of 10,000, 100,000, 200,000 years. That's the scale of human history. Well, if you ask the question, are there trends, not trends so regular that we can apply mathematical formulae to them, but nevertheless, trends, the answer is yes. And I can, I can list several, and I do in the book on the future. One is technological creativity. 200,000 years ago, we were a, 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 a newish mammal species with a limited impact on our surroundings. Today, we dominate change on planet Earth. Now, you can draw a line between those two epochs. It takes the form of a sort of accelerating curve, and it's the curve of, of, of collective learning, of growing information, growing command over our environment. So that's one trend. That trend is... If it's existed for 200,000 years, it makes sense not to be too dismissive of technological optimism. So I haven't forgotten your question was about optimism. So that's the first thing. I, I used to be, like a lot of people in the humanities, a bit dismissive about technological optimists. We should expect science and technology to surprise us. Now, not all the surprises will be good, but some of them will be. They will help us out of a fix that we're in. So that's one thing. A second thing is, is increasing network, uh, collab global collaboration. That's another trend that goes back for the whole of human history, is the size of the communities within which humans share information and share projects has expanded. And again, it's an accelerating curve very slowly for most of history, but at astonishing speed in just my lifetime. The networks, in, even in my lifetime, when I was a kid, uh, the nation made a lot of sense. If I traveled to France from England, people dressed differently, the cars were different, the, the language was different, of course, you know, everything was different. Nowadays, that's not true. So the trend of Global collaboration is a very, very powerful one. Now, if my rules, if Hume's rules of prediction are right, we should take these long trends very seriously and we should study them very seriously because what they predict in a probabilistic way, as always, 
is that global collaboration, despite the friction we see today, will increase in the future, that technological insights will increase in the near future, that in the near future, humans will collaborate globally, as in recent centuries, they collaborate at the scale of national units. So um, these are some of the reasons why I'm optimism, optimistic. Of course, there are, it's not hard to find uh, very dangerous trends as well. But these are the reasons for being optimism, optimistic. But there's another one, which is strategic or tactical, rather, I should say, which is that without optimism, we go nowhere. In other words, if as a species we face huge, dangerous, possibly existential challenges, the first step in facing them and trying to deal with them must be placing a bet that there is a way of dealing with them. Does that make sense? So that, that um, this is all a bit Churchillian, and I say that you know, uh, as, as someone who grew up in, in the aftermath of, of the war in Britain, if, 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 you, if you're convinced that uh, an existential crisis is around, is around the corner, that demotivates all the thinking and work, hard work needed to avoid that existential crisis. So optimism is part of the technology we will need to build a better future. And the motivation for building a better future is bloody obvious. I mean, <laughs> you know, some, something like altruism is built into all the great moral traditions of our world. But for me, as someone with three gorgeous, gorgeous grandchildren, it's now deeply personal in a way that it wasn't even 20 years ago. You know, it's, um, it's their fate um, that we need to be working on. Sorry if that sounds a bit, bit grandiose, but... Um... No, no, no. I mean, that's, that's what we need. Um, yeah, I think, I think the only question that I'd have to that is, do you think that will require some sort of intentional change? Um, because the trouble, I think, in building... A, a global identity is not just that we we need the technology and the knowledge to solve these problems because in, in some sense we already have that like that in in some sense at least with the climate we, we certainly have an understanding of what's wrong and what needs to be done um we, we have the resources the technology to start implementing that uh and not just climate right like we we, we have the resources to and, and to address global hunger or, or the unimaginable inequality that's out there we it's not a matter of not enough technology or not enough resources, not enough knowledge. It's it's a matter of utilizing them correctly. It's a matter of reorienting our social, political, economic institutions in that direction. Exactly. And that that going back to this idea that we live in a universe with processes, some of which are regular and some of which aren't, it becomes crucial to to see that the climate scientists can make powerful predictions that take the form of, because they're talking about mechanical processes. If 
they're complex mechanical processes, but they're mechanical. If, you know, we keep pumping greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, um, we can be pretty sure that temperatures will reach this level. Uh, in Australia at the moment, we've seen the wettest. Yeah, in Pakistan, there've been these horrendous, horrendous floods. And, and the reason's very simple, because the atmosphere can hold so much more water as it warms. So they, they, the climate scientists operate in a fairly, in a domain where there are a lot of regularities that allow reasonably powerful forms of prediction. When you ask the political questions, and those are questions about whether we humans will do the things necessary to do, and I agree with you completely, by the way, that the knowledge and the technologies needed are already here and a lot more are probably going to arrive quite soon. So the politics is crucial. That's a domain in which we cannot predict because this is the domain where, the, you know, the conscious decisions of conscious beings play a crucial role. And uh, yeah, so I, I, I can predict that if we carry on on our present course, you know, um the, the 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 world will will not be a nice place to live in for my grandchildren what i cannot predict is if politicians will do the necessary things though i look if you look at much more short term trends once again i think there's room for optimism because when i was a, a kid no one even talked about all of these issues whereas now climate change is pretty close to the center of the political agenda, I think, for most governments on the planet. Living in Australia, maybe I'm, I'm more optimistic than I would have been just two years ago, because suddenly we have a government that takes these things very seriously, and we haven't for 10 years. Well, I mean, I, I return to, to what you said earlier, is that uh, optimism is going to be our greatest weapon. Yeah. Or, or rather, just you know, to dispense with that weapon is, seems to be very foolish. And as a, you know, as someone who grew up in Britain, I think of Britain in, you know, the late 30s, where there really was a choice to assume that, that Nazism was so powerful and Britain so weak that that collaboration was unavoidable. You know, I, I'm, I'm not an admirer of Churchill in, in many aspects but that one i think he got right and that was that was someone and he got the rhetoric right saying we have no choice but to try to solve this 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 challenge uh and it it won't be easy and it'll be costly and all of that but uh, and i think that's the situation in we're in now pessimism just is not is not helpful. I don't know if you follow the Grand Transit, the Great Transition Initiative website, which um, they had. They've just had a discussion about what has changed in the twenty years since uh, since they first started functioning. And I contributed an essay, which was more or less saying this, saying that despite everything, rolling over and saying we're done. It's just not helpful. Just, just, and there's a sort of spooky seductiveness about about 
about pessimism. And I think it's a big mistake to fall for it. 